Good morning. If you are new to Bowling Green Christian Church, I just want, uh, on behalf of everybody here, just say good morning and welcome. And I apologize sincerely for being here this Sunday. Um, I am I am not Weston Williams. I am not the, um, the normal minister here. Uh, my name is Ben Beto. I'm uh, I'm one of the elders, and uh, Weston is actually the island of St. Vincent's uh, right now, helping uh, helping train ministers. And so I know he appreciates all the prayer that you guys have been have been giving him. Uh, and I just ask that you continue to uh, keep his family uh, and him in um, in your prayers as he finishes up his work there. So what that means for us here back in Bowling Green is that you guys get a couple of weeks where Weston isn't in the pulpit. Last week, we um, we were blessed enough to have uh, Brian Mason here speaking um, about how science and Christianity can be reconciled. A lot of people believe that uh, those are two opposing forces that can't be can't be mixed. And I think Brian just did a great job of explaining how those can um, coexist. And if you weren't here last week and didn't hear the that sermon, I'd highly recommend hopping on the church website and uh, and downloading that. It's um, it's really really good. Um, and then there's me. So um, we'll uh, <laughs> just uh, it's like a bandaid, rip it off quick, right? Um, I also I also do want to uh, apologize for the lighting situation. This is not this is not an attempt at ambience. It's um, we, we've had a piece of equipment fail, and apparently 1970s Russian technology just isn't quite where it used to be. So um, you'll have to bear with me this morning um, as I look out, and I just see a bunch of shadows. And as I try to read, when I start reading this close, um, it's dark. But, hey, the first church met in caves, right? So it's all, it all works out. Um, it's an interesting, interesting fact here. The, uh, according to the uh, Center of Disease Control, 48% of all adults in the United States meet the uh, CDC's 2008 physical activity guidelines, which means more than half don't. Another interesting fact added on to that, um, still from the CDC, is that uh, 34%, that's over a third, 34% of adults in this country indicated that they get 10 minutes or less of physical activity per week. Take this and compare to uh, the Nielsen rating study um, that looks at the same adults for the same week. And depending on your age, you watch either 25 hours all the way up through 48 hours of television per week. And just to kind of compare apples to apples, I've upconverted those hours for you. That's um, 1,500 minutes all the way up to 2,880 minutes per week compared to the 10 minutes or less of physical activity. Um, Next slide. We are becoming a nation <laughs> of couch potatoes. Merriam-Webster defines couch potato as, and I quote, a lazy and inactive person, especially one who spends a great deal of time watching television. That's actually in the dictionary, which is really cool. Um, What's not so cool, we, we, have, we are slowly, we are rapidly becoming a nation of couch potatoes. And this is, 
the message today is not going to be one of, you know, your body is a temple and all of that stuff. Because, I mean, look at me. I'd be a raging hypocrite if I went that direction. But what I, what I fear is that the, our tendency to become a couch potato is bleeding over into our spiritual lives as well. And so I, I want to caution against that this morning. And I want to look at, um, I want to key off a main verse this morning. It's uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. You may recognize this as the Great Commission. Flip open there if you don't care. I'm going to make you all work and get the scripture. I'm not going to just throw it up on the screen. Maybe that's laziness on my part. <laughs> Probably is. Okay. Chapter 28, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, now, we see, this, we see this scripture a lot when we're talking about missionaries. When, and I'm, I'm talking like the international missionaries who go uh, halfway around the world to um, preach Christ to a group of peoples that have never even heard of Christ. And I think that's a very appropriate reason for this verse. But what I, I think where we back home tend to kind of mess this up is that we kind of take that verse and we delegate it off to the missionaries. Like, oh, this, this is talking about the missionaries who go to all nations. And that means we can just sit and do our thing. And we can just go about life and being a, Christ, a Christian. But, but those people, the missionaries, they're the ones doing the important work. And um, so this morning, I want to look at several uh, instances where people have gone. And I want to try to kind of overcome some of the, um, frankly, some of the lies that Satan is giving us about why we can't just go. Oh, wow, that worked well. That was an accident. All right. Good deal. Let's, um, what does it mean to go? Well, let's actually look at that word. Because in scriptures here, it says, therefore, go and make disciples. Well, what does go actually mean? Well, good old dictionary. Uh, go is a verb. A verb is an action word. It's not an adjective. It doesn't describe something. It means I'm actually doing something um, to move on a course, to take a certain course or follow a certain procedure to extend from point to point, to move along in a specified manner, to apply oneself. If you've ever played the game of Monopoly, if you pass a certain square, it's go, you collect $200. And the rules of the game state quite clearly that you can't collect $200 if you go to jail. And what I'm, what I'm worried about, church, is that we're planting ourselves in, in, a, in a spiritual jail. We're just visiting when we could actually be out there doing. So let's look at some examples of Christians that were out doing. The book of Acts is an incredible resource uh, for the activities of the early church. Uh, we're going to look at several people um, in the uh, early church and some of the activities that they did. First off, I'm going to look at, uh, at Peter. In Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, I mean, I could have been turning there. It's always third service. Okay, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at a time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a crippled man from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. 
So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, check this out. This is, this is cool. Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Verse 7, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. There's a couple of elements in this story I want to just kind of point out and, and make sure that we, that, we, that we really get here. Um, the United States is the wealthiest economy in the world. I don't know that for sure, but it's up there. If it's, if it's not the number one, it's way up there. And we are far and away ahead of most economies and therefore a lot of cultures in the world. And I think a lot of us have a tendency to, well, let's just write a check. We see all the suffering on television. We see all the stuff. And instead of packing up and going and doing something about it, our doing something about it is pulling out the checkbook, writing off a check, and we feel good about ourselves. Notice that Peter didn't do this. It might be because he just didn't have any gold or silver on him. But gold or silver wasn't going to help this guy. Gold and silver was going to get this guy some food for a day. And then the next day, guess what? He's back at the gate called Beautiful begging for more stuff. What does Peter give him? He gives him Christ and therefore healing. Another little detail that just slips under the radar here that I think is just mega cool. Verse 7, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Which came first? Peter helping the man up or the man's ankles and feet becoming strong? Peter helped him up. He could stand there all day and say, I heal thee. But without the action, without action of Peter going and helping to pull him up, the man would have just sat there. God is powerful. Absolutely, God's powerful. But God requires us to go out and take action to implement what God is. God, God can do. OK. Still in Acts. Let's look at another example. Let's look at Paul. I'm not going to read all that. Don't worry. <laughs> to say that Paul is a prolific um, personality in the uh, in the New Testament uh, would be an understatement. Um, I like to describe Paul as uh, spiritually hyperactive. Um, and, and the reason I put all these chapters up here is you can get an idea um, about Paul's activities by going through and reading the headings, just the headings. I mean, read read the the book, of course, but just go through and read the headings of these of these chapters on where Paul is going. And for seven chapters, Paul is going everywhere. And what's Paul doing? Paul's preaching the word. Without Paul, we would not have at least 13 books of the New Testament. Um, depending on who you ask, we might not have the 14th book of, uh, of Hebrews. But Paul, we, we definitely know, wrote Romans. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and again, like I said, maybe Hebrews. We, uh, we don't know that for sure. And so Paul went. Paul was doing. Paul was not content to just sit on his couch and do nothing, his spiritual tent-making couch. Okay, one more example and then we'll start trying to knock down some of those reasons why you're still on the couch. The example I want to give next is Moses. And if you spent any time in church, 
from an early age, you'll know who Moses is. Uh, and in Moses 3, let's go there real quick. This is a very familiar story to all of us. Did I say Moses 3? <laughs> Somebody get that guy off stage. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Exodus 3. Mark, is this one on the podcast? <laughs> Edit. Okay. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had come over to him, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God, your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because they're slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Here we go. Verse 10. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Notice that God didn't just go in and boom, kick down the door of Pharaoh and say, let my let my people go because Pharaoh would have done it. I mean, God could have just made that happen. But what did God do? God required Moses to go and actually get the people free. And if you know the rest of the story, it took several tries. And uh, Pharaoh's kind of a stubborn guy. But uh, it, it took Moses' action. So, all right, next slide. So, this, because of all this, why are we still on the couch? The internet is full of these kinds of pictures. Just a little known fact, the internet is the world's largest repository of cat pictures in the world. Right, Emma Claire? Yes. <laughs> okay. So, um, next slide. Enough of that. <laughs> um, you might be thinking, look, I, God can't use me. I have, done, I have done some awful, awful things in my life. And there's no way that God is going to use some guy like me who has done this atrocious, atrocious sin. And to that, I, I, I say hogwash. I mean, that's, it, it's absolutely not true. Let's look at some times when God has used some people who have done some pretty awful things for his, uh, for his, um, his work. Uh, we're going to return to Paul, who we talked about, had the Acts 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, the whole thing, the guy who was spiritually hyperactive. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. And Saul was one of the biggest persecutors of Christians in the world. He was known by the early church as being a really bad guy and who would come in and with his hyper-legalism oversee the death of lots of Christians. Uh, he oversaw the death, uh, the stoning death of Stephen um, in Acts 6. Um, and so the story goes, Saul is traveling down the road. He's got his entourage and Christ appears to him. Now, this is not the Christ of, uh, of Matthew 2. This is the Christ of Revelation. This is the Christ that comes in with a big 
explosion. Saul, why do you persecute me? And needless to say, terror is struck in the heart of, of Saul. And he is, uh, he's blinded. And so Saul is instructed to go and go to a house and in Damascus and wait. It's kind of interesting. With a big, huge explosion like that, boom, don't you know who I am? Go wait at this house. It's, it kind of reminds me of when I was a kid. And go to your room until your father gets home. Um, I don't know that um, what that was going through Saul's mind, but um, maybe, maybe it was. Um, another example. Next, next slide here is King David. Um, King David was. I mean, again, King David's one of those Hall of Fame Bible guys that um, that you know did all kinds of great all kinds of great things. He was a direct ancestor of Christ. Um, he he's the little boy that threw the stones and knocked down Goliath. But David had his fair share of sins too. Um, most of us know about the uh, affair with uh, Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. I want to get into the, to the gritty details of that. But apparently David saw something. He liked it. He had her husband killed. And I, I'm sorry, that's, that's pretty terrible. Another, th- another thing that, um, that uh, David did was in 1 Samuel 25... Four through eight. I can never remember hearing this in an actual sermon, and so I now want to change that. Let's go to First Samuel twenty-five. I'm so petty. Verse four. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal, Nabal, let's call him Nabal, Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them. Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we didn't mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they'll tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son, David, whatever you can find for them. Kind of read between the lines here. This is a really thinly veiled threat, and it it, it rings almost mafia style, doesn't it? Yeah, we were here before. Things went well. Don't you want things to continue to go well? Eh? Why don't you take care of us? Um, Is that the kind of guy doing that kind of thing, going in with the the proverbial lead pipe, banging against their hand, Hey, you're going to take care of us this time? Do you want that guy, do you think that guy should be the direct descendant of Christ, number one? Number two, doing great things for the Lord. I don't want, this is rhetorical, I don't want any answers here. But has anybody in here done any like mob style threats before? I haven't. I led someone to believe that I was in the mafia once. I've confessed and repented for that. So anyway, despite all of this stuff, all the stuff that David did, the mafia stuff, the, the, the affairs, um, he, he did an illegal census when he wasn't supposed to. Despite all of this, God still used him. What David didn't do was sit back on his throne and have a pity party. Oh, I've done these terrible things. Oh, I can't believe this and just sit there and sulk. What David didn't do was sit there and go, man, this used to be great 20 years ago when things were this way. It was just so nice and so great. No, what did David do? David moved. David kept going. 
Let's return to Moses. Earlier, we looked at Exodus chapter 3. Moses was out in the wilderness tending sheep. Um, You ever stop and ask yourself why Moses was out tending sheep? I mean, here's a guy that was the adopted stepson of the daughter of Pharaoh. Royalty, effectively, right? Why in the world is this guy out tending sheep for his father-in-law? Well, chapter 2 tells us that. Let's go there real quick. Did I say Moses chapter 2? Got me paranoid now. Okay. Exodus 2 verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Verse 12. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Again, I don't want an answer to this. But ask yourself, have you ever done anything like this? I haven't. Moses had. And yet Moses is used by God. I'm not going to preach the entire book of Exodus. But Moses was used by God to free the Israelites from slavery and move them to the promised land. That's a big job. That's a big deal. And the guy was a murderer. What's your excuse? Next slide. All right, so that's all well and good. God can use me, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. I'm not ready yet. Um, I I don't have all of the information yet. Uh, I'm still working on getting this sorted out. Um, I don't know, you know, the times and the places to do all of this. I've got to get this taken care of. I've got to get that taken care of. And which country am I supposed to go to or am I supposed to stay here? Uh, And if I do something at work, do I need to do it during a meeting or do I need to do it one-on-one? And I I just, I need to wait until I know all the information before I get into it. And again, I say that is an excuse straight from the devil. You don't need to wait. We have lots of Examples in the Bible where we don't have all the information. Hebrews 11, for one, is chock full of examples where people, by faith, operated and did what God told them to do without having all the facts. Let's look at Acts chapter 8 now. Acts 8, verse 26. This is the story of Philip... And the, uh, and the eunuch. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, I just want to revisit this. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Period. End quote. Did the angel say anything else? Not at this time. Look at verse 27. So he started out. What? I mean, just imagine if... You got some, you got some requests. Let's just say from work. Let's 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 not even go the spiritual direction yet. Let's just say work said, "All right, I need you to get in your car and go down I sixty five South." You look at your boss like he was crazy. Okay, where do you want me to go? Do you want me to go to Nashville? Do you want me to go, you know, down to Birmingham? I mean, what what's what's going on? When do you want me to do this? What do I need to take with me? You're looking for all these facts, right? What did Philip do? Verse 27, he went. He started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Without reliving the whole story here, what happened with this eunuch? He was reading the book of Isaiah. It's hard to understand. 
Philip and this eunuch started a dialogue. It ended in the Ethiopian eunuch becoming baptized. God had a plan. Philip didn't know what that plan was until he took action. So you're not going to have the facts. You just need to take action when you feel that call. Second example is in the book of Revelation. Weston just finished a wonderful series on Revelation, and I don't even pretend to have the ability to come close to that. But I do want to touch on something that Weston purposefully skipped over. I want to go and dig into it a little bit. It's Revelation chapter 10. So just in case you're not up to speed on this, Revelation is um, the writings of John after a um, having a vision from God about basically the end of the world, the end of times. And we got chapter 10 here. It starts out. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fire, fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. This is awesome imagery so far, right? When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. What? After all that intro, there's something that was said and John was writing it down. But John was told not to write it down. Why? Yeah, I think it's because... So we have faith that we know we're not going to have the answers. It's right here in the Bible. God said, no, they don't get this part. And I don't know what that part is. But this is a great example of why if we just sit back and we wait for the facts, we're going to become a lazy couch potato. Speaking of which, next slide. That's my favorite. Okay, so maybe, like, all right, fine, God can use sinners, fine, I need to work by faith. But look, you know, it's, all these people in the Bible, these are like biblical rock stars. I'm just a guy in a shirt. I mean, what, what can I possibly do to affect God's kingdom? I mean, just a little background on me. I, um, I work with servers all day. Um, I'm, I'm that weird guy that's up at the top floor where there's this room that nobody gets to go into that has all these big, towering, crazy-looking computers with all kinds of flashing lights and everything. What can I possibly do for the kingdom of God? I, don't ha I haven't been to seminary. I haven't you know, done all of this training that needs to happen here. Well, I've got a couple of examples of that. Um, God can still ask us, even the, quote, layperson, to do things, big things or small things. Ananias in, uh, in Acts was asked to do a big thing. Here we're returning to the story of Saul. Remember, Saul was the guy who killed all the Christians. He was known by the early church as being that guy who killed all the Christians. What we know about Ananias, Ananias chapter 9, I'm in Revelation. I did that first service. That would be an entirely different story. Acts chapter 9, verse 11. Actually, verse, let's look at verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. 
That's all we know about Ananias. There's two other Ananiases in the book of Acts, one in chapter 5, one in chapter 22. Totally different guys. It's like having Mr. Smith. There's more than one Mr. Smith. This Ananias, the Acts 9 Ananias, we know very, very little about, other than he was a disciple. Now, what was Ananias required to do? Let's read on. The Lord said to him, go, go to the house of Judas on State Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now, that might as well have been go to a house and ask for bin Laden of Pakistan, for he is praying. Okay, that's the kind of reputation that Saul had at the time. Now, can you imagine just a guy in a shirt being told to go pray over bin Laden? Wow. No. Um, are, are you kidding me? Um, thankfully, Ananias um, did not do that. What did Ananias do? He went and prayed over over Saul. And um, if Saul was a zealot before about the law, Saul turned into a zealot for Christ. Saul became Paul, who we talked about earlier. Acts 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 had all those books of the New Testament. This was the bin Laden of early Christianity beforehand. God can do anything through anybody. Okay. So God can do big things through guys in shirts. What about little things too? And, and absolutely, God can do anything through anybody. And here's, here's a little example here. Um, Lydia. Lydia is, uh, was a member of the early church. I believe this is 16. Yeah, it doesn't matter exactly where it is, but Lydia was a member of the early church. Um, she was a successful businesswoman. We know that because um, she sold purple cloth, and purple cloth was the finest of linen that you could buy in the day. And um, she was very successful at it. She converted to Christianity, and um, what she did, she didn't just sit back and say, now I'm a Christian, on with the purple cloth. She, she did some things. She made her house available for the, for the missionaries who were traveling around. And later on, when Paul and Silas um, were released from prison, Lydia's house, Lydia made her house available for them to, uh, to stay until they found more permanent uh, residency before they, before they moved on. And so, yeah, you are just you. You are a created being from God. God created you in his image. You can do it. If we go back to ver- to Matthew 28, the verse right before 19 and 20, right before the Great Commission, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God's got it. God's totally in control. Then we have, therefore. So God's in control. Therefore, go. That's a commandment for all of us. Get up and go get off of your couch and go so next slide now what all right great i need i need to get out and go what do i need to get out and go do and and frankly the answer to that is between you and god this might mean something as drastic as packing up and going halfway around the world to to mission to people who have never heard of christ much less you know be you know, for Christ. And so that might be, um, God might be calling you to um, go down to Haiti with Kathy Perkinson and to serve the, uh, to serve the people there. Um, 
go could mean to um, to do something right here in town. Maybe there's um, a certain uh, mission that you want to you want to support. Maybe there's a certain ministry here that you'd like to start. Maybe there is maybe God's on you to start a Sunday school class. Maybe God's on you to maybe help with the youth or help with the children downstairs or maybe to serve on the worship team. I don't know. But God is talking to you. God is telling you something that you can get up and that you can go and that you can do. So with that, everyone today that we've looked at, there's a huge range, huge range of qualifications, huge range of previous sins, huge range of, you know, of whatever. But all of them have one thing in common. And that one thing was to get up and to actually go. And so as Americans, go ahead, next slide. As Americans, as we sit around and grow more couch potato-y, um, I just want to urge you to not let that get into your spiritual, uh, into your spiritual life. To get up and I mean, get off the literal couch, but get off the spiritual couch too. Get up there, get out there, make a difference. Christ told us to go and make disciples. If you are new to Bowling Green Christian Church, first off, welcome. Apologize again. Um, but we want to help you off that couch. Come get off the couch and come, uh, come join us. We would love, we'd love to have you. Um, if you have a decision to make, I'll be down front here for a little bit. And either myself or any one of our elders will be happy to, to pray with you. Thank you.